0: All right, how's everybody doing tonight? Good. We uh, we don't have a podium, so I think we'll be okay though. Matthew chapter 8, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 8. Hopefully you'll remember from past weeks that Jesus here, we're, we're at a transitional phase in uh, Matthew, if you will, where he, is, he was at around the Sea of Galilee in the hill country just to the west of the Sea of Galilee. That was the setting for the Sermon on the Mount, chapter, Matthew chapters 5 to 7. Then, after the Sermon on the Mount, you'll remember he goes into Capernaum, which is a little bit further west, kind of that area right in between the Mediterranean Sea and the Sea of Galilee. And that's where he spends time doing miracles, ministering to people, um, uh, various things. And last week, you'll remember, as crowds begin to gather, as people begin to hear about the ministry of Jesus, the power of his teaching, the way he taught with such authority, uh, the miracles that he was performing, that he was uh, taking people who were ill from since birth, people who had long-term, lifelong diseases and instantly healing them. That he was casting out demons. That manifestation of his power combined with his uh, overwhelming and uniquely authoritative teaching, news spread and people were coming and there was just mobs and mobs of people coming around Jesus and, and crowding around him. And in verse 18 of chapter 8, remember from last week, when, the crowds, when Jesus saw the crowds, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And so last week, we looked at kind of the, the trip from there, from, the sea, or from Capernaum down to the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. And the big defining feature of verses 18 to 22 were two individuals who came and expressed their desire to follow after Christ. And Christ, knowing their hearts, knowing that they had yet to count the cost of what it truly meant to be a disciple of his, knowing their hearts, he brought that to their attention. He brought to their attention that they had yet to recognize the value of Christ and the value of following him above all earthly things. He, he told the one man that, hey, even the animals of this earth have a place to lay their head. Yet me, the, the, the son of man, I have nowhere to lay my head. Hey, and remember the other guy. He wanted to stick around until he was able to get his inheritance from his dad. He wanted to stick around. And he was like, Christ, I'll follow you. I'll follow you one day, but not yet. I'm not ready yet. And Christ told him, hey let the dead bury their own dead. Like, leave the things to this world for the people of this world. If you want to follow me, leave this world behind and commit yourself fully. Throughout chapter 8, Jesus has been showing his divine power. He's been showing us that he is the Son of God. He is God made flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. What are some of the areas in which He's displayed his power. What are some of the ways he's displayed his power? Ian? Miracles in general. Miracles in general. And, but here's the thing it wasn't miracles over just one certain type of thing or one certain area. Owen, what were you going to say? His authoritative, uh, authoritative speaking. Over speaking? Like he's, uh, uh, his authoritative teaching? Yeah. Yeah, his authoritative teaching. But he kind of went through different elements of our existence. And showed himself as Lord all-powerful over all of it, right? Like we think about sickness in our physical bodies. Christ showed he is sovereign over our physical well-being. He healed diseases. In chapter one, 8, verses 1 through 4, he healed the leper. Then in verses 5 to 13, it's the centurion servant. So these aren't even people who are traditionally understood the people to be the people of God. These, these are people, you, you got people from within the Jewish community, and you've got people from without the Jewish community. And Jesus, through both of them, is showing his authoritative power over physical disease. Then, so you got the, the physical realm of our existence, but then you also have the spiritual. Back in chapter 4, it talked about him having the authority to cast out demons. In verse 16 of chapter 8, he cast out spirits with the word. We're going to come across next lesson in Matthew chapter eight, where he, uh, that Matthew hones in on two really specific um, individuals through, through whom Jesus was casting out demons. Jesus is showing his power over spiritual forces. And now, tonight, we get a whole nother dimension. We get our physical realm, this nature, that nature, the earth that we live in. Jesus demonstrating his power over nature. And really, the big centerpiece to all of chapter 8 is verse 17. Verse 17, Matthew says, This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Isaiah quotes, or Matthew quotes there a passage from Isaiah that people knew was a reference to the coming Messiah. People knew that this was a reference to the coming Son of God, God's eternal plan of redemption being played out on this earth. And that's what the Gospels are all about. The Gospels, whether it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they are all about pointing us to Jesus Christ as the Savior we need. That's what the Old Testament prepared us for. That's what the Old Testament prepared the nation of Israel for, the reality that we have a sin problem, but that God had a redemptive plan for this sin problem, a plan to be carried out through His Son, through the Messiah, and Matthew is showing us that Jesus is that Messiah. So tonight, as we look at this passage of Jesus calming the sea, and we see His power over nature, this is just one more building block in Matthew's argument, or just one more piece of evidence that Matthew is laying out for us, that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is King. Remember, that's the the overall theme of Matthew. Jesus is King, and He's showing us His authority over all things. Tonight, we focus on His power over nature. Again, the context here is Jesus moving from kind of the central part of northern Israel, heading east across the Sea of Galilee to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And we saw them set out on this journey last week. Um, Now they find themselves on the Sea of Galilee. Pick up with me in verse 23. It says, When he got to the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. So they find themselves on the sea. And it's important that you keep the right kind of boat in mind. I think when we read uh, the Bible, we... Very often, in fact, all the time, we kind of, our imaginations get going on exactly what we're seeing. And a lot of times it just misses. It A lot of times can downplay the situation. Kind of, kind of like I've mentioned a few times, when you see uh, the Gospels tell us that there were crowds around Jesus and his disciples, our mind can sometimes envision like a few people, you know? Or like, you know, there's 10, 15 people coming up, when in reality, you're looking at throngs of people, like disruptive crowds. Well, here you read Jesus getting on the boat, and at least my mind, I start thinking like the party yacht or like the party boat that we rented back in May, right? Like this big thing, this thing that comfortably fits a lot of people. It's kind of a you know a relaxing ride across the lake and a relaxing break. But that's really uh, very unlikely to be what Jesus and his disciples are riding in. Most likely, this was a type of fishing boat that was relatively small, probably could maximum fit uh, the 12 to 15 people that were with Jesus, and was pretty low down in the water. Um, Definitely not the kind of boat that you would want to be in when a major storm arose. And so when we get to verse 24, we see the crisis here. The crisis is that they're in this boat, Mark tells us it's at night, and a great storm arises on the sea. Now, how many of you are kind of freaked out by large bodies of water? Yeah, it's kind of creepy, right? Like, it's pretty creepy to be in the water or on a boat and look down and think, wow, like, that's just water. For like hundreds of feet. Isn't that so bizarre? And like, if I think about it, it really freaks me out. I hate cruises. That's even worse. No, (laughs) that's an excellent point. It's not just water. That makes it worse. And they have no life jackets. No, oh, that's a good thing to point out too. They didn't have like U.S. Coast Guard certified... Uh, you know, you get on the party boat, you got to have a U.S. Coast Guard certified life jacket for every individual. I doubt the Sea of Galilee had those kind of regulations. Did they say it was a big storm? Was it like a major rainstorm? Or is this like a hurricane or a sea? I would put it somewhere in between a huge storm and a hurricane. It was a significant storm because the words that we see here. So, Mark and Matthew use two different words, they put it two different ways, but they paint the same picture. So. Matthew says um, that the boat was being covered with waves. Mark tells us that the boat was filling up with water. So either way, it's a problem, right? And like, when I was on a cruise ship, it really freaked me out to be standing there and like looking out and just seeing the, the seemingly bottomless ocean. So to be on a little bitty fishing boat... No lifeguards, or life jackets, but no lifeguards either, probably. Um, The the, um, waves filling up the boat. It's nighttime. I mean, it's a pretty terrifying type of situation, right? Like, you can put yourself in their shoes and understand the panic and how frightened they are. They obviously felt that their lives were very much in danger. They obviously felt that they were scared. Um, But Jesus is asleep. Jesus is asleep. How weird, right? How Jesus is asleep. Now, Jesus and the others on the boat have vastly different reactions to the circumstances. Do they not? Let's first of all, let's look at the disciples' reaction. Verse 25. I'm sorry. Um, Yeah, verse 25. The disciples come to Jesus and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. They thought they were going to die. And it's probably a pretty reasonable fear at this point. Again, a tiny boat, filling up with water, middle of this big lake. They were terrified. Now, which which category do you think you would be in? you think you'd be the terrified disciple category, or you think you would be the laid-back, relaxed in Jesus category? Oh, I'd be totally relaxed. You'd be totally relaxed? That's pretty good. Ian, I think you'd be pretty, well, I don't know. I would be freaking out at the bottom of the boat. You'd be freaking out at the bottom of the boat, okay. Okay. You'd be scared, but you'd put on a brave face. That's good. I like that. That's the kind of people you need. People would put on a brave face. you would pass out. You'd pass out. Hey. All right. Not adding to the hysteria, necessarily. i don't like how I'd be able to <laughs> You'd be able Well, this was at, before the Titanic, so at least they wouldn't have had the Titanic visual in their head. Right. <laughs> so that's a good thing. Uh, I'd jump out and drown so I could get out. Oh geez! I don't know. I mean, that's the last one. Well, that's a good point. So you got Jesus on the boat, but and that is a great point. But do you have? Do you get scared in life about things now? Do you have Jesus with you now, just as much as they did on the boat? Yeah, I mean, right? It's, uh, it, it's interesting to think that way. It's interesting, to, it's easy from our perspective to step back and be like, how can you be scared? You're with Jesus. Like, I remember, I've had friends like that. I had this friend many years, well, still a friend, but like many years ago, I don't think this way now, but back then I was like, I like hanging out with this guy, I'm bulletproof, you know? Like, nothing can touch me when I'm with this guy. Like, you'd think that that's how we think that they would think of Jesus, but we're, no pun intended, in the same boat, right? Like, we get into so many problems, so many difficulties in our life. If anything, we have much more revelation about who Jesus is today than they did, right? I mean, like, we can at least step back and read about the full ministry of Christ, everything that the apostles taught us and all the additional light that Christ and the apostles threw on the Old Testament about who God is and who Jesus is and our relationship with him. So if anything, we have far less reason to be afraid in life circumstances than these guys on the boat because Christ is just as much with us as he was with them that night. But the reality of being human is we deal with fear. We deal with difficult circumstances. If any of us say that we are never afraid, we're just being Evan. We're putting on the brave face, but the reality is, on the inside, we're scared, right? And, uh, and so I'm glad you said that, Fox. That's a, that's a really good observation because it's easy for us to be tempted to say, how would they be afraid? They're with Jesus. But we see the same thing in our lives. Um, I like I like what Mark records them saying. They go wake Jesus up, and they're like, do you not care that we are perishing? I mean, in a way, you can understand why they kind of see Jesus as the inconsiderate friend here, right? But Jesus has been afraid because he was human, but also he had control over everything. So... You know, there is often as we read the Gospels, Jesus, we know. So I go back to what we've talked about in previous times. There's things we 100% know about God, and we're good. We know them. There's things, though, that sometimes when we look at God, I mean, who he is is just simply somewhat beyond our understanding, and there's some mystery there, right? So we cling to what we know, and It's okay to explore and talk about the mystery, but so we know Jesus is 100% man, and we know that Jesus is 100% God, and there's no doubt there. That's crystal clear. But as you look at the life of Christ, you do see his humanity and his divinity interact in ways that there's a little bit of mystery there, you know? I mean... Did Jesus get tired? I mean, was he? Why was he asleep? Was he tired from, like, he was busy? Think about all the ministry he did. Think about what Alejandro talked about a few weeks ago, how when Jesus is ministering in Peter's house and healing the mother-in-law, he's been on a full day's, like, teaching and just mobs. It's got to be physically exhausting. Here, it's about a day's journey from where they started in Capernaum to where they get on the boat. Jesus might just be flat-out tired, you know? Um, Did Jesus get afraid? It's a good question. I would think that it was something in his humanity, I would venture to say, that he dealt with that. Think about the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Like, going to the cross was something he lovingly did in love for us and obedience to the Father, but he definitely dealt with the human anguish of the situation. Look at the Garden of Gethsemane, and you see his humanity very much impacted by the reality of what he was to suffer in the cross and take I on the wrath of God. I can see him being afraid about like dying, but I'm not sure about, like, like, like a, say a snake. He has control over the snake, so... Like, if he knows that he's going to do yeah. something, he could be afraid of that, just for, like, feeling it. But, like, I don't know about you. I'm with you here. Like, the, I think I could uh, get on, I don't know the answer to this, but I could get on board with the idea that Jesus is asleep in the boat because he knows that this isn't, dying in the middle, of, like, sinking on a fishing boat isn't what God the Father sent him here to do, you know? I could definitely get on board with that, with Jesus saying, you know, let it storm. God just, or the Father just wants me to use this as an opportunity to demonstrate my power. I think that he wasn't fearful because he knew that he was powerful, And even though he was human, he's able to deal with everything perfectly. So I don't think he was fearful. I think he was more annoyed with his disciples for waking him up after a very physically exhausting day a piece of um, yeah, I'm open to the idea that he was not afraid at all. I'm also open to the idea that he was fully human, and so maybe he did. I don't know. Um, I don't think he would be afraid of death because he knew he was going down the cross, and that wouldn't be God's plan to death. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not going to argue with you on that. I don't. I don't know. I'd have to think that through. That's kind of. I'm going to put that in the category of something interesting to think about and explore, but like, okay, I can think of plenty of things where I know, I mean, I know, I feel very confident in where I go after death, but I still have a little bit of anxiousness about the process, you know, like, so I I don't know, it's a tough question. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But I can think of a lot of things that I'm anxious about when I know. You know, the bottom line is, we go back to what I was saying. We cling to those things that the Bible clearly tells us, right? We don't negotiate on those. But there's some mystery when it comes to God and when you're dealing with the mystery of God made flesh. Um, But it's it's a very interesting thing to talk about. And I think it comes up in a very interesting way here. The disciples had no doubt at this point that their lives were very much in danger. And to them, it is just completely a mystery as to why in the midst of their life circumstances where they've left family, they've left businesses, they've left worldly possessions, To follow this Christ? Think about it. Put yourself in their shoes. You said, okay, so Jesus, we saw last week, he had a high call for discipleship, high demands. It costs you everything. Leave everything to follow me. These people agree to that. They get on this boat, and now this is where it got them. Thanks, right? Like, you can put yourself in their shoes and think, I left everything just to die here in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, to drown. So they go directly to the man who got them into this situation to start with. Jesus, who is asleep in the boat. But what? So that's the reaction of the men on the boat. What's the reaction of Jesus? That's really where it gets remarkable. In verse 24, um, we see Jesus is asleep. And in verse 25, they come to him. And wake him up, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. He said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Now that's a question, right? Why are you afraid? It's like, Are you serious? What do you mean? Why are we afraid? Like, look around you. Like, did you not notice that the mat you're sleeping on here is like five inches deep in water? you know why it's five inches deep in water? Because there's a raging storm outside and all the waves are crashing in over the boat and we're filling up with water and we're sinking and we are about to die. What do you mean, why are we afraid? Like, it's a a question that just kind of um, sets you back, right? Why are you afraid? But then, he goes on, you men of little faith. Jesus comments on their lack of faith. That's interesting. It's, uh, if you know the reality of who Jesus is, is there ever truly a reason to be afraid? If you understand the attributes of God, we talk about God's perfect love God's perfect sovereignty God's perfect knowledge Think about how those three things work together, right? You have the all-knowing All-powerful All-loving Creator of this universe Who is your God Who is intimately invested in every aspect of your life. Now take away any of those. Let's take away love for a second. Can you imagine how terrifying God would be if, if, if he was all-knowing and all-powerful, but he lacked love? That's terrifying, right? I mean, that's a tyrant. That's a dictator. Or what if you have a God who is all-loving and he's all-powerful, but he doesn't know much. Like, lots of passion and lots of power with minimal knowledge, that's just a recipe for recklessness, right? Or what if you have, which one, have I, I always forget which one I leave out. Uh, where are we at? All-powerful. All-powerful not-, not all. What if you have a God who is all-knowing and all-loving, but maybe he can get the job done? I mean, it's nice, right? He's going to give it his best effort, but it may or may not work out. Like if Jesus decided to test the disciples and send that raiding storm, but then he couldn't stop it. Yeah. Like, oh, sorry, that was meant to be a test, but now you're just yeah. saying, Why? Like, we don't want that. Like that That's a great illustration. Like, God's plans, he has good intentions, but sometimes they get off track. That's terrifying. Possibly the worst variation is he's all powerful? Um, has no love, and doesn't know a whole lot. That'd be and a then problem. It's just like he's just aimlessly doing stuff that may or may not be right. And then he's a politician, right? No, that's bad. That, that's <laughs> bad. I'm sorry. I just had to say. Uh, no, the um, the yeah. I mean, you see how the attributes of God work together, and so uh, I think what the point Jesus is making, obviously. Jesus knows the circumstances. He knows the situation. He knows uh, the disciples who are with him. With him. Uh, he knows what's going on. So his question is not really a question of him trying to seek knowledge. His question is intended to spur thought, to get us thinking, to, to instigate our hearts and our thinking And waking us up to the reality that, hey, why do we have such little faith when we are with the sovereign of the universe who loves us and knows perfectly? that There's no logical reason for fear. Now, that doesn't mean as humans that we don't still struggle with fear. We do because as humans, we don't always think rightly. Even when we know what we should think, we wrestle with our thoughts and we struggle with our thoughts. And we live in a sinful, fallen world and we still have sinfulness in our lives and in our hearts that, that interrupt us from thinking properly. So we struggle with it. But what Jesus is showing here is really the irrationality of fear. So he makes these comments to him. And this isn't even the astounding part yet. Like, they're prob- probably already pretty mystified at this point in the story. You leave everything to follow this guy named Jesus. You follow him. You get on this boat, middle of the night. There's a huge storm. He's asleep. You wake him up. He says, Why are you afraid? You have little faith. So there's already like, these people are really, the situation's a little astonishing, but it hasn't even gotten to the weird part yet, or the powerful part yet. It goes on. Then Jesus got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. Now that's amazing. Like, naturally, storms don't just immediately clear out right like storms weaken and dissipate but they don't just stop and clear out disturbed waters don't just instantly become flat become flat lepers don't instantly get cleansed people with fevers don't just instantly get better but these are miracles these are uh, instances of divine power Interrupting the natural order and doing those things which are physically impossible, scientifically impossible. Have you heard, how many times have you heard people say, oh, Elisha couldn't have made the axe head float? That's physically impossible. It's like, well, duh, that's the point. That's why it's recorded in the Bible as a miracle. Moses couldn't have parted the Red Sea, that's impossible. That's the point. These are physically impossible things that God is interjecting his power into time and history to show us his power and that he is Lord over all. Just the fact that Jesus got up to rebuke the wind and the sea. Who does that? There's only two reasons you get up to talk to the weather with the real expectation that something's going to happen. Either one, you're crazy, or two, you're God. Those are the only two explanations, right? Like, next time we have a rainstorm, I challenge any of you to get out there and do anything about it, right? You can't. And if you do try, we're just going to make fun of you because it's ridiculous. Jesus... Getting up to rebuke the wind and the sea is an absolutely ridiculous thing unless he is the God that he claims to be. Unless he is the God that the Bible tells us he is. But think about what the Bible says about who Jesus is. So often when we think about creation, who do we think, who do you typically think of? When you talk about creation from the Trinity, the father, right? Or we always talk about like God created the heavens and the earth. That's true. But I think the person of the Trinity that comes to mind is the father. When in reality, it's the Trinity. All members of the the father, the son and the Holy Spirit are all creators of this universe. Listen to what the Bible specifically says about um, Jesus, in his role in creation, and his role with nature. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. Let me set this down while I feed my pages. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. Jesus, this is talking about Jesus, we'll start in verse 15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Jesus all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. And here's a big part, too, right? It's not just the creation piece. But Jesus is the... um, Sorry, I got distracted by that bug, too. Uh, Verse 17, Jesus is before all things, and in Jesus, all things hold together. That's a role of Christ that I think we can easily forget and overlook. That Jesus is Lord of creation just as much as the Father. Just as much as the Holy Spirit. Jesus can get up to rebuke the wind and the waves because he is Lord over those things. John 1.1, talking about Jesus. In the beginning was the word. And the word, we find out this word is Jesus because this word becomes flesh in verse 14. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Jesus is Lord of creation. Matthew shows that to us here in this just extremely vivid illustration of the power of Christ. So if it's health, your physical well-being, like the physical health of your body, if it's the spiritual realm, if it's weather and the order of nature in this world, Jesus is Lord of it all. Jesus is in control of it all. And this is the same Jesus that chose to die for your salvation. What a remarkable thing that is. What a remarkable thing it is to have this same Christ that is Lord over all, love you individually, loves his church, and you individually, each member of his church, so much that he would die for your salvation. He would die for your sins. Does that not blow you away? It's a remarkable thing to be loved by anyone. It's a remarkable thing to be loved by a friend, a parent, a sibling. But they're not God. They're not the infinite holder of the universe. It is a remarkable thing. And it's Matthew showing us that Jesus is the long-awaited King, Messiah, and Emmanuel. So we saw the disciples' reaction to the storm. Now, their reaction to Christ in verse 27. The men were amazed and said, What kind of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Well, It's because he's not just an ordinary man. He is fully man. He's 100% man. But he's also 100% someone else. God. He's Emmanuel. He's God made flesh. In the wind, and the seas, they have no choice but to obey him. So hopefully the application here is pretty obvious, right? The application I would say is twofold. One, who do you say Christ is? Matthew Matthew couldn't make it any clearer. If you're looking for God, Matthew couldn't be any clearer that Jesus Christ is him. Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. He is Lord of all. And so the question for you is really just how are you going to respond to that? You've seen the demands. We saw the demands he made of the two individuals who came and said, I want to follow him. The call to follow Christ is the call to treasure him above this world. That means above Friends, above family, above school, above your job, whatever ambitions you may have, that means all those things now get subordinated to Jesus Christ being number one. That's the demand and that's the call. And Jesus is showing you who He is. And you have no choice in life but to make a decision on what you're going to do with the person of Jesus Christ. You you can't dodge the question. It's either Jesus Christ is who he claims to be, and you're going to answer that call to follow him as a disciple, or you reject him, right? And think back to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Alejandro taught about the two foundations. Alejandro taught us about Uh, the promise-coming judgment, and that there's really only two results. The one whose life is built on the sand, which is anything other than Christ. Anything other than Christ. Falls, crashes, comes to destruction, right? The one built on Christ stands in the day of judgment. But the reality is you can't get away from that question. You've got to make that choice. And uh, our prayer obviously is that you would recognize who Christ is, that there's life and hope and nobody else, and that you would recognize that he is worthy to be made number one. He is worthy to leave the things of this world behind to follow him. Um, The the second point of application, because hopefully a number of you have already come to that place where you've decided, hey, I am going to follow Christ with my life. The second point of application is recognize who your Lord is. Like, life is going to get scary. It's the nature of living in a fallen world. You're going to get sick. People around you are going to get sick. There's going to be financial trouble in either your life or the lives of the people around you. There's going to be employment trouble in either your life or the lives of people around you. You name it. There are endless ways that life can get difficult and that life can get challenging. That's what Mr. Buster was talking about when he, when he was taught us that new song. And he said, hey, think about that first line. Like, it's God's grace and mercy that he doesn't show you all the things that life has in store for you. Because we live in a fallen world and we still fall into sin very often and bring trouble on our own selves with that. And then just living in a fallen world, there's going to be sinful trouble. So, look, trouble's going to happen. You're going to find yourself on the stormy sea in a completely inadequate boat. All right? But Christ is with you just as much as he was with those men in the boat. And even if he's asleep, he knows what's going on. All right? He knows he's perfectly omnipotent at all times. Or He knows what's going on at all times. He, uh, and he, he's intricately, intricately involved in your life at all times. Trust in him. Trust in your Savior. He's not going to die for your sins. Save your soul. Make you a child of the Father. And then abandon you in some unintended place. Trust your Savior. Keep pressing on. Keep following him. I wish those lyrics were excellent to that song. I mean... That song, I, I had not heard it before, but it was just right on point. Like, your, safe, your Savior's love is more than enough. All right? Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you so much for your love for us that even in the midst of incredibly difficult circumstances, you're with us. And you've got power, infinite power over all of the different factors of our life all the different things that can come into our life you are Lord of it all and you love us perfectly and we thank you for that we pray for just our hearts that we would recognize who you are that we would recognize um, Matthew's testimony about you as the son of God and that we would accept that call to follow you as disciples of you and to love you, to place you above all things. Pray that you'd help us to walk faithfully, and as we finish out this week, help us to glorify you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.